Good morning, my friends, and welcome to this Christmas Eve installment of Weekend Update. From high above all other puerile and pedantic forms of Wyoming mainstream media, this is Cowboy State Politics. I, of course, am your illustrious host, David Iverson, firmly ensconced behind the silver Cowboy State Politics microphone and broadcasting to you from the base of the Bighorns, in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, my friends. This is absolutely, without a doubt, with no hesitation, my favorite time of year. I just love Christmas. I love everything about it. I've been telling you for a while that there's a couple times of year when you just need to put politics aside, that it really doesn't matter at that time. Trust me, all the politics will be there when you get back. It's not going anywhere. Christmas is one of those, but this program being Cowboy State Politics, we have to make a little bit of fun of the Democrats while we're at it, but still keeping in the Christmas spirit. Most of what I have for you this morning is just a celebration of Christmas. I have a couple people that you've heard from on the program before that are just going to share a Christmas memory, one of which, if you have kids listening to this program, You should probably kind of usher them out of the room when that happens. Don't worry, I'll give you a heads up. Um, I've just got some inside intel on Santa that they don't need to be privy to. Wink, wink. This Christmas Eve special is brought to you by the generous sponsors of Cowboy State Politics. Morton Buildings, 307 Cowboy Country and Fabrication. The Winget Food Truck. New Trend Hats. Gunrunner Auctions and the Buffalo Wool Company. Without their generous support, I wouldn't be able to continue doing Cowboy State politics. Well, I could, if I skipped a couple meals every now and again. But I don't really want to do that. But probably most importantly, this program would not exist without you. You are the reason why I sit behind this microphone every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday morning I do my very best to keep you informed because I respect the time that you give me. I do not have the words to express what it feels like to know that each and every one of you take time out of your day to listen to what I have to say. And probably the coolest thing about having this program is being able to interact with all of you. You wouldn't believe the amount of messages that I get each and every day from people that listen to this program. It truly warms my heart. And I am profoundly thankful for all of you. The first thing I want you to do this morning while you're listening to this is just think for a minute of all of the things that are going on in our world. Things are pretty crazy, aren't they? If any of us made a list of all the things that are going wrong in our world, we'd probably be sitting at our desk all day long. Inflation is sky high. The economy's in the toilet. Every time you go fill up your car, you're paying for it with one of your kidneys. There's a ton of stuff that's going on. Okay, now I want you to stop thinking about that and think about this. 
How many children right now are going out of their minds over Christmas? How many memories are you creating right now that are going to last a lifetime? It is absolutely amazing, the power of Christmas. Just think about it. I'm 44 years old. The most powerful memory for me is when I was 10, 10 or 11, around there. And my sister, well, she's three years younger than I am. And Christmas Eve, that girl would not go to sleep. And we knew that we had to go to sleep or Santa wasn't going to come. And so the plan was that we were going to sit in my room and I was going to read her Twas the Night Before Christmas from, you know, one of those golden books, you know, the ones that have the gold binding on them. I think I got five pages into it. And you got to admit that there wasn't that much on every page of those. And that girl was out like a light. We woke up at 5, 5.30, something like that. And we both looked at each other and said, It's Christmas! And then both of us went tearing up the stairs into the living room. Now, the rule in our house is you couldn't do anything until mom and dad were up. So we were intentionally loud trying to wake mom and dad up. And I'm sure it was only a couple of minutes before they came walking into the living room. Uh, But it felt like hours. And then that Christmas was on. But that was 30 years ago, give or take. And I still remember it like it was yesterday. Pretty powerful stuff. I was talking with one of the people I've become pretty good friends with over the past year about what her favorite Christmas memory is. I'm pretty sure you'll recognize who it is, but here's what she had to say. I grew up in a, in a very humble household. I grew up in a very, very humble household. And as a result, um, we only got one Christmas gift every year. That's all we would have. And I will tell you that I remember almost every single gift. And I'm 60 years old. I took, I turned 60 years old this year. I can remember almost every single gift that I received because they were so special. That was the thing that you got. And so um, I, I think that in some ways, and, and so we didn't spend a lot of time dealing with things, um, you know, the meals and being together and playing in the snow and doing all of that was really the focus and cooking. Um, you know, I, I love to cook and I started cooking the Christmas dinner when I was pretty young and just spending that time with my mother and my family. That's really what I think about with Christmas anymore. I have two granddaughters that I just absolutely adore. And yes, I spoil them rotten just like everybody does. <laughs> they get so much and they, and they're fun and we have a lot of fun with it. Uh, it's just a very different way of celebrating today than, than the way that we celebrated when I grew up. And I think that Probably a lot of people around my age were, were very similar. You know, you just get that very one special gift. And, and it, was a, it was a good way to celebrate and understand what the purpose of the season is. Harriet's right. She's absolutely right. Christmas is not about stuff, nor has it ever been. That's something that we've created. It's about the time that you spend with your family and how absolutely precious and special that is. Growing up, My favorite pastor was a guy named Ole Natwick. He's long since passed away, but I think about him often. Every Christmas Eve, we'd have a candlelight service in the Methodist Church in Buffalo. It's a beautiful small-town church. There's stained glass windows that line both sides, and every Christmas, that candlelight service would light up those windows, and you could see the flickering of the flame in the stained glass. It was an amazing sight. 
We practice that service over and over and over because nobody wanted to disappoint Ole in what we all assumed was his favorite service of the year. What I remember most, aside from the candles, are the hymns in the service. They take me back to my childhood, and I'm sure they do the exact same thing for you. More than that, though, it reminds me of what Christmas is really about, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, about the memories that we're making with our family, and how important they really are to all of us. I told you, did the exact same thing for you, didn't it? As you all know, I'm a big fan of Paul Harvey. And what he would do is he would find a story in some newspaper somewhere. Most of the time it was from some far-flung place. And he'd talk about it with you and tell you what the story really means. So this year, instead of just repeating one of his Christmas stories, I thought I would try it out for myself. So yesterday, when I was looking through the New York Times... An article by William Broad caught my attention. Now he's trying to explain something away by using science. Quite frankly, my friends, there are some things in this world that cannot be explained by science. There's only one alternative. It could have soared to dazzling heights. Its central tower, 445 feet high, dwarfing all else, including the Statue of Liberty, a cathedral that would have approached heaven but would never have the chance. It was to be the end-all be-all, said an architectural historian of the massive would-be tower. They chose the perfect site. It was to be the defining characteristic of our nation's most impressive city. The man behind this worldly endeavor was a wealthy man named Henry C. Potter, who eventually married the heiress to the Singer sewing machine fortune. Henry Potter was also a reverend in the Episcopal Church. In 1887, the Right Reverend Potter became the Right Bishop Potter. He now possessed the right connections and position to build what he saw as America's preeminent church, a modern-day Tower of Babel. So he and his advisors chose the perfect piece of land, high up on a cliff, which eventually became Cathedral Parkway. Set on the second-highest point in Manhattan, It was to command the position of the most impressive structure of the Manhattan skyline, a tribute to man's conquering of the earth, a behemoth in the already rising metropolis. Bishop Potter proclaimed that no other cathedral in any great city in the world has today a site which for commanding dignity will approach that which we have secured. An ode to man, it would seem, On a winter day in 1892, the prelate, armed with a silver trowel from Tiffany and Company, a harp, 
an organ, a 70-person choir, an orchestra, the Secretary of the Navy, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, and hundreds of other dignitaries laid its cornerstone. Work had begun. During the spring thaw of 1893, workmen began to dig, and dig, and dig. They found no solid rock, but bubbling springs underneath. Fruitless digging, the New York World declared in a September 9th headline. The article said the pit, 40 feet deep, had been excavated, but they found no bedrock. The hole was becoming just as magnificent as the plans for the church. After two years of digging, they finally hit bedrock. The hole was now 72 feet deep, halfway through the plateau, upon which the church was to sit. In August of 1895, three years after work had started, it was announced that a supplemental foundation would be poured out of concrete. But years of digging and pouring concrete were of no help. The massive 445-foot tower, which the right Reverend Potter was still insistent on, also required a massive foundation. Over the decades, the tower's size was reduced farther and farther, until it vanished altogether. But not until J.P. Morgan threw $500,000 at the project. That's $17 million in today's money. The Vanderbilts and the Belmonts also contributed huge sums of money. But it was not to be. The cathedral's chosen ground had turned out to be honeycombed with springs and decomposing rock. Their surprise led planners to delay the church's foundation and eventually scrap the looming tower, beginning what in time became known as St. John the Unfinished. Though it is now the defining institution in New York City, it remains half-built after some 130 years. Its front towers are little more than stubs. But our story doesn't end there. Just as the right Bishop Potter had forgotten the one Bible story he should have been paying attention to, he had forgotten the whole reason for building a church in the first place, to honor and worship our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the digging and pouring could not overcome the spring they were trying to build on top of. Their every effort was thwarted. Had the right Bishop Potter just opened his eyes a little bit, more appropriately, had the Bishop Potter prayed and listened to what he was being told, he would have realized the gift that he had been given. The spring. Perhaps all the difficulties in constructing St. John's Cathedral in New York are best summed up by Jim Patterson, the cathedral's head of facilities, when he said, Truth be told, we really don't know where all that water is coming from. End quote. I, for one, will give you one guess. Christians have always preferred the living waters of springs and streams. Jesus himself was baptized in the Jordan River. Many early churches and cathedrals were built near springs or streams for that very reason. The cathedral itself, from the very beginning, was to be named St. John, after the man who baptized Jesus. The baptism is part of being born again, the erasure of sin. Emerging from the water, innocent and free. Just as Jesus was born that Christmas morning, he came to this world to take away all of our sins. Today, St. John the Unfinished is now called St. John the Divine in New York City. 
it is probably the most beautiful baptistery in the United States, and it was always supposed to be that way. God, it would seem, does not want us to build towers to him, because he has already come to us, and he comes to us again tomorrow. As I mentioned, it wouldn't be cowboy state politics if we didn't at least make a little fun of the Democrats. In Wyoming, we all know that the Democrats have really donned a red coat and they're hiding in the Republican Party. So it is the same in Washington, D.C. And since everything seems to be politics these days, why not a rendition of Twas the Night Before Christmas to have some fun with our friends on the other side? Twas the week before Christmas, and through the Senate and House, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The earmarks were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The senators were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of pork danced in their heads. No budget was found, just mischief and debt, while the taxpayers hung their poor heads and wept. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, senators sprang from their oxygen. What was the matter? Away to the window they flew like a flash, tore open the shutters when they heard the word cash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a 4,000-page omni with endless debt year after year. With a little old driver, so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now McConnell, now Schumer, now Pelosi and Vixen, on Biden, on Stupid, on Dumber and Blitzen, to debt, to bankruptcy, to free money for all. Now dash away, dash away, more cash for all. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As the economy threatened to run aground, down the chimney, St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of earmarks he had flung on his back, an appropriator's dream opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. This spending season, instead of naughty and nice, Santa brought everyone something, regardless of price. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head, he said not to worry, there's always the Fed. He spoke not a word and went straight to his work. Undeterred by the debt, he turned with a jerk. For naughty Pentagon that lost billions last year, a fat stocking with extra cash and cheer. And don't forget a delicious candy cane, sweet with $40 billion to tide over Ukraine. Because of the climate, it's not PC to leave coal. No one seems to care because we're trillions in the hole. Don't worry about leaving the budget a mess. Democrats have given you 87,000 agents of the IRS. So St. Nick laid his finger aside his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. 
he sprang to slay his economist agog, numbing the pain with a cup of eggnog. Up and away through the, through the countries in tatters, free stuff for all, sky-high prices don't matter. That's not the version I remember, but everything now is different than I remember, so why not that story too? Speaking of our friends on the other side, well, that's not exactly fair, because this next guy, he actually is a Republican, but I don't agree with anything that he has to say most of the time, and he's certainly not coming within a hundred yards of the Silver Cowboy State Politics microphone. Oh, and remember that part I mentioned where you might want to usher the kids out of the room because this next part contains a little bit of inside intel on Santa? Yeah, this would be it. So I asked our columnist pal the same thing that I asked Harriet. What's one of your favorite Christmas memories? Here's what he had to say. You need to create a picture in your mind of Rollins during the 50s, during the holiday season, with the sideways snow and all the snowmen are blown over. The decorations are blowing down the streets. It's like 20 below, but everybody is in the holiday spirit. I, I remember very clearly going down to the Woolworths building and sitting on Santa's lap and asking for a Red Ryder BB gun. And uh, yeah, six, seven, eight years old, something like that, a little kid. We all believed in Santa Claus. It was, it was just an article of faith that Santa Claus brought toys from the North Pole, landed his sled on your roof, came down your chimney and, and gave you presents under the tree. And you left milk and cookies out. You're very careful to leave milk and cookies out for Santa Claus. And then in the morning, as you, as, you, as you run by the little table to go to the tree, you notice the milk and cookies are gone. So Santa Claus was there, left you all this stuff. But I was always kind of a skeptical kid. As I got a little older, things just didn't add up. Like uh, the number of houses in the world, how fat Santa Claus was, all that kind of stuff. So I started questioning the myth of Santa Claus and, and I, w I would watch my parents wrap the presents and I knew what kind of wrapping paper they were using and, and they would wrap a bunch of presents and only a few of those presents would show up under the tree with, with little tags on them to rod from mom and dad and that kind of stuff. Some of the packages they wrapped disappeared. I was over in my grandma's house poking through the gun closet one time because my grandpa had this 10-gauge side-by-side Damascus barrel shotgun that I just love. And I found a bunch of presents wrapped in that same paper from my house with tags on them that said, to Rod from Santa. So it's like, aha. At, at that moment, all my illusions of childhood were gone. But it doesn't matter, David, because we still get the presents from Santa. And Santa is still this, this uh, symbol of the holiday season, of, of people feasting together with their families and uh, the tradition of giving and, you know, fireside and the smell of grandpa's petals and shirt as you cuddled in his lap. And all of that stuff is associated with Santa Claus. So to this day, I love Santa Claus because of the myth, because of the, the power of that myth over us, even if he's not real. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, I sat on his lap at Woolworths, and he gave me a Red Ryder BB gun, so Santa is real. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to defend that to my dying day. Now, these days, 
you know, in, in our woke age or whatever. A lot of people see Santa dressed in red and with a beard and giving free toys to kids that didn't work for them. And uh, they, they think Santa's some kind of Bolshevik, some kind of commie, but he's not. It's, it's the spirit of giving. So I, I, I treasure that. My next guest is a guy that I just recently got to know. His name is Jason Shirley. He lives here in Buffalo, and recently he had the lead in a Christmas production here at the base of the Bighorns. I had him over to the studio to talk about it. All right, so the, the piece we're going to listen to here in just a minute is from a Christmas play. There's a first time for everything. I joke because um, I'd been asked to be a part of this, this theater group uh, here in town, and it was something I'd never done before, but something that I'd always wanted to try. When you're a teenager and you're insecure and you're under the peer pressures of everyone else, you know, being in the drama group and that kind of thing, it's like, well, I can't do that. I'm a jock, you know. I play football, you know. And again, looking back, I go, man, I should have given that a go. And so at this stage, you're kind of like, great, well, I'm going to try the things that I've never tried. And I was asked by um, Amy Williams here in town to be a part of this and and uh, specifically to host, you know, kind of serve as the host of this radio program, this World War II themed musical radio broadcast and asked me to sing. You know, what you hear and what I sang, I've never sung before. You know, I've never really sung in that style. I have to say, I've spent a lot of windshield time singing along to the likes of, say, Bobby Darren and, and um, you know, of course, you think of the, the, the greats, the, the Elvises and the Frank Sinatras and that kind of thing, and singing along with those with those guys. But, uh, yeah, this was a this was a first time thing. So um, but it was it was very nice, too, because a lot of folks came up afterwards and said, wow, you know, it sounded really good. It sounded really cool. All right. Well, let's give it a listen. Sure. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones we used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen to hear Sleigh bells in the snow I'm dreaming Of a white Christmas With every Christmas card I write And may days be merry and bright And may all your Christmases be wide.
got a great voice, doesn't he? We're going to have Mr. Shirley on the program after the holiday. One thing that most of us probably don't do during the Christmas season is take time out of our day to read our Bible, to read what the real story of Christmas actually is, about Jesus' birth. So I've been making a point to do that, and it occurred to me that there are a lot of bit players that are mentioned in the story that we really don't know anything about. One of them is the innkeeper. And we've all been told that when Mary and Joseph showed up in Bethlehem, they went to the inn and the innkeeper turned them away and so they had to stay in a stable and that's where Jesus was born. But I think the Bethlehem innkeeper has been getting a bum rap. Christmas seasons and sometimes in between, pulpits are aflame with righteous wrath over the Jesus born in a manger story. The very idea that men had waited through 20 centuries of darkness and the long-sought light had to enter the world through the window of a stable. Prophets of the Old Testament had told them where to expect the baby, and approximately when, and yet the innkeeper did not even reserve a room. Wow, what a schmuck that guy turned out to be. Well, let's hold the phone right there. The innkeeper has been getting a bum rap all this time. If Robert Schuller was not the first to remind us, he was certainly the most eloquent when once upon a Christmas time, he redirected the Bethlehem story, and he protested that the innkeeper had become the victim of cheap shots by preachers, teachers, and pageant writers. The Bible does not accuse the innkeeper. Joseph did not complain to the innkeeper, and Mary didn't complain either. Actually, the stable wasn't a stable at all. It was a cave in a hillside where the cattle lived. It had many advantages over a room at the inn. The inn in Bethlehem was no Marriott Hotel. It was a place where the masses collected, ruffians and thieves and heavy drinkers and rowdy men. In the inn, there would have been no soft straw bed. Mary would have had to lie on a hard floor. Yeah, you try telling a pregnant lady that's where she's going to have a baby, and we'll see how that works out for you. The inn was jam-packed at tax-paying time. The groans of n and natural screams of a teenage mother delivering her first child would have been overheard in other rooms. In the stable, there was privacy, where nobody would overhear her labor. No leering eyes would peer upon a woman giving birth. The stable was safe and secure, and warmer than the inn. The inn was without heat. It didn't have central air. There weren't any furnaces. No more than one lobby fireplace is all there was. But the white nostrils of cattle exhaling steam, breathing in the cold air and breathing out warm air, warmed the stable. What might Joseph have done to protect his tax money against the thieves and ruffians in the inn? Yet, in the safety of the stable, there was no fear of a knife at one's throat late into the night. So God and the innkeeper cooperated to provide a perfect place for Jesus to be born, a safe place, a quiet, soft, warm, comparatively comfortable, perfect place. And besides, the much-aligned innkeeper of Bethlehem had given the best that he had, and that's all that can be asked of any of us. In other words, none of this is about stuff. You know me, I couldn't do an entire Christmas Eve episode without a little bit of Paul Harvey. 
So while I'd like to take credit for that last bit about the innkeeper, that's not mine. That's his. I just kind of jazzed it up a little bit. But he brings up a good point, that nothing about the Christmas season has anything to do with the things that you receive. Rather, it's about the people that you're with and being thankful for the gifts that you've been given. Tonight, we celebrate the most incredible gift that God could have ever given us, the forgiveness of all of our sins, and he sacrificed his son to do it. It's about the time that you spend with your families. It's about the memories that you're making right now that are going to last forever. May the blessings of Christmas and those of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be upon your home. Have a good Christmas Eve and an amazing Christmas Day. And I've still got one more thing for Christmas up my sleeve. Look out for it late tonight. From the base of the Bighorns on this Christmas Eve, I'm David Iverson, and this is the one and only Cowboy State Politics.